man. Over the Easter period, we spent much time, didn't we, considering the gospel narratives that led up to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're greatly blessed in the week of meetings that we had with the Reverend Thomas Martin. He brought us to Gethsemane. He brought us to Gabbatha. He brought us to Golgotha. And there we watched and listened in amazement as the Son of God suffered the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. The cross, as we look at it, it reveals the cruelty of evil men. God held them accountable for it. We know Peter said that in in Acts chapter 2. But it also reveals the love of God and Christ toward his people. And we're reminded that Jesus did not die for his own sins. He died for ours and for ours own, for ours alone. In Luke 23:41, we read, For we receive the due reward. Remember the testimony of the dying thief, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And though he had done nothing amiss, he was condemned as the innocent to be guilty to die. He was condemned not only by Pilate, but when Jesus died, he was guilty. He was guilty. Not with his own sin, but with our sin that was laid upon him. And what an eternity of learning is comprehended in those words that we've considered so often sang again about the night. The sixth cry from the cross, finished. It is finished, as we sang earlier on, what assurance do the wondrous words afford Heavenly blessings without measure flow to us from Christ the Lord. It is finished, it is finished, saints, the dying words record. The gospel does not leave Jesus on the cross. The gospel does not leave Jesus in the tomb. The gospel brings us to the place of resurrection and exaltation. And tonight we're, we're glad that we believe in a risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And all of those narratives that we find that are recorded in the gospel that depict the sufferings of the Son of God are doctrinally expounded in the New Testament epistles and throughout, of the, throughout the rest of the Word of God. Now Romans chapter 4 and 25, it brings us to rest upon two great cardinal truths of the gospel of redeeming grace. And I think as a no other verse, if somebody asked you, could you summarize the gospel for me? Well, you could take them to no better verse than Romans 4 and 25. For on these two pillars, the whole of redemptive theology is based. We read about Jesus, that he was delivered for our offenses and that he was raised again for our justification. And I thought that would be a good place to restart with you. Again, the gospel meetings here and on along this evening. Those who will trust the saving of their souls to Romans 4 and 25, they will experience, as the, the context of the chapter shows us, that the righteousness of God will be imputed to them. Isn't that a wonderful thought? God's righteousness imputed to us through the deliverance and the raising again of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
has well been said, these are the two main hinges upon which the door of salvation turns. And if you are going to open that door tonight and enter in through, these are the two hinges that you need to make note of. So the first truth is that Christ was delivered for our offences. Now the word that is used in Romans 4 and 25 for delivered is a very important biblical word. It means to be surrendered. It means to be yielded up. It means to be betrayed, to be brought forth, to be committed, to be given over. And as we trace it in the New Testament scriptures, it is very frequently used. In Matthew's Gospel, for example, Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, it means betrayal. The Lord Jesus was betrayed. He was delivered. He was betrayed into the hands of his enemies. In Matthew 27, verse 2, verse 18, verse 26, verse 58, he was delivered because he was crucified. So when it talks about Jesus being delivered, we're brought right to the center cross of Calvary. He not only was betrayed into the hands of his enemies, but he was delivered to be crucified. He was given up to die. He was delivered for our offenses. For our offenses. That's the great gospel message. It wasn't for his own offense he was delivered. He was given to be crucified. He was betrayed. He was delivered because of our offenses. All of the offenses that we had made against the law of God, Jesus was delivered for what you and I and how you and I had offended Almighty God. We can never comprehend, uh, dear children of God, how our sin offends Almighty God. Have you ever stopped to consider how sin offends Almighty God? Sin is an offense in the sight of God. He is of pure eyes, the Bible says, even to look upon sins. Of pure eyes, even to look upon them. How those hours of darkness tell us so much about the holiness of God in that as the Son of God suffered on Calvary, nature shrouded him, blotted him out. He was separated from the Father and darkness shut him off as never before. He, he was delivered for our offenses. Sometimes people say, we, we minimize sin. We talk about white lies. There's no such thing about white lies. All lie, every lie is a damnable lie. In other words, every lie will damn the sinner to hell. It can be a child telling that white lie, but it's still a damnable lie. I don't want anyone here tonight, the youngest to the oldest, to minimize sin. It is sin that is the offense. It was sin that Jesus was delivered on to be crucified for. Your sin and my sin. He was delivered. It, it, it means he, on account of. On account of our sins, he was delivered to be crucified. He was delivered so that they might be expiated. That's a very biblical word, expiation. I know some of you listen, R.C. Sproul, sometimes his definitions 
that he gives of those great theological words are, are very hard to uh, beat. His meaning of the word expiation, he puts it like this, the prefix ex means out of or from. So expiation has to do with removing something or taking something away. And that's exactly what Jesus was delivered for. He was delivered for our offenses that they might be taken away, that they might be removed from us. So in biblical terms, it's the taking away of our guilt. It's the removal of our guilt through the payment of someone else. Jesus paid what we deserve to pay because he was delivered for our offenses. Oh, men and women, we bow in, in humble acknowledgement, humble acknowledgement tonight that he was delivered for our offenses. The prefix pro, it means for. So propitiation, it means to bring about a change in God's attitude. He is propitiated. He is propitiated. In other words, he moves from being at enmity with us to being reconciled to us. It's not exactly what we read in question 25 in the Shorter Catechism earlier on. How we buy an acknowledgement in this deliverance for our offences. He was a willing and obedient sacrifice. A willing and obedient sacrifice. The Lord Jesus was not bound and taken to the cross against his will. He willingly went to Calvary. Willingly. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. Just the same way the little lamb was brought to the slaughter. So the Lord Jesus was brought to the slaughter. It's not a wonderful vivid, vivid description of Calvary. <clears throat> it was a place of slaughter. We wouldn't use those terms lightly. He was slaughtered for us. Slaughtered. And he opened not his mouth. Peter, taking the same thought up in 1 Peter 2, 21-24, he reminds us that Christ also suffered for us. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. He suffered for us our offences. He bare our own sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead might live. We being dead, being crucified with Christ, might live unto him. He not only was the obedient sacrifice but by that sacrifice, he paid the price, <clears throat> the price of all our sins. You know, as a boy, I remember going to meetings and hearing gospel preachers preaching those great capital texts. And those texts still are in my mind to this present day. Such texts as Romans chapter 5, verse 6 eh, and onwards. It just simply says there, while we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died 
for the ungodly. The four just remind us in the place of he died for the ungodly. He was delivered for our offences. He was delivered unto death for you and for me. We read in verse 8, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. That's the gospel. You know, there are preachers today and they're trying to reinvent the old story, but you can't reinvent the gospel. That is simply the gospel message. He was delivered for our offenses in order that our sins might be expiated and he paid the penalty that we owed uh, to the law of God on our behalf in, 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 in order that our own selves would be at peace with God again. So we read the Gospels, we get the Gospel narratives, we, we look at the crucifixion scene, but when we come to the epistles, we, we find the doctrinal teaching of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's Christ's death, and it's Christ's blood shedding that were the means of removing the guilt and, and uh, the punishment of sin and restoring us to fellowship with God. It's a wonderful thing tonight to be part of the blood-washed flock of Christ. Somebody used that expression last week in the meetings and it just resonated with me. Here I was in this place with people many had never met before from different parts of Kenya and beyond and they were described just as the blood-washed flock of Christ. And wherever you meet the people of God, wherever they're from, they're part of the blood-washed flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first great pillar of the gospel truth is upon which all redemptive grace stands that he was delivered, given over for our offenses. The, the second truth that is highlighted for us here, that he was raised again for our justification. He was raised again for our justification. He was delivered for our offenses for that our sins might be expiated, but he was raised in order that we might be justified. Again, we're coming to great gospel terminology and to great gospel words. And both alike are necessary for the sinner to be saved. The blood shedding of the Lord Jesus Christ satisfied divine justice. It expiated our sin, put away our sin. But his resurrection provided the proof that his sacrifice had been accepted as a payment or an expiation for our sins. So how do we know that the sacrifice of Christ was accepted by the Father on the behalf of his people? Because on the third day he rose again. That's how we know. We know that sin has been paid and the payment has been accepted because he was raised again from the dead. He's a living, risen, exalted saviour. That's how we know that the gospel really is a, 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 the power of God unto salvation that can take those that are dead and raise them to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. If he had not been raised from the dead, there would be eternal significance. Have you ever thought of what would have happened if he hadn't been raised from the dead. I don't know how Unitarians and liberals have a message to preach because the eternal significance of he hadn't been raised from the dead obliterates everything. The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, that great chapter on the resurrection, if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain and ye are yet in your sins. 
Tell that to the liberals who deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ is not raised, you're still dead in your sins. We're all on the road to a lost eternity. There's nowhere else for us. To be still in sins means that you're still under the eternal judgment and condemnation of Almighty God. You're here tonight unsaved. That's exactly where you are. You're standing at the bar of a holy God and you're condemned in the sight of a holy God. If you're still in your sins, it means you're still under condemnation. If you're to die in that seat where you're seated tonight, you'd be lost. Lost for all of God's eternity to hell forevermore. You'd go out into the very depths of hell from a gospel meeting. That's what it means to be still in your sin. I want you to think about it tonight and ponder it and, uh, and meditate upon it to be still in your sin. But if Jesus had not have been raised from the dead, we all forevermore would have been still in our sin. There would have been nothing else but to face God in judgment for our sin. He was delivered for our offences, but he was raised again for our justification. He was not only raised, but he ascended. That's why that catechism was so providential tonight. <clears throat> we have a great high priest. By his once and for all sacrifice on Calvary, he not only satisfied divine justice, he not only reconciled us to God, but he ever liveth, ever liveth to make intercession for us. And he stands at God's right hand and he ever pleads for his church, for his people. And he ever applies redemptive grace to us. When somebody says, I'm praying for you, it's a wonderful thing. When somebody says, I'm praying for you. But Jesus says tonight to his church, I'm praying for you. What a blessing. If the grave had been victorious and would have held the Savior in its prison, our justification would have been impossible. Charles Hodge, he uses this wonderful analogy of the Old Testament priest, not only slaying the victim in the outer court, but in that outer court of the tabernacle, but he also took the shed blood of the victim into the inner court, into the most holy place, and there it was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And thus it was necessary that Christ, our great high priest, should not only suffer in the outer court on Calvary itself, but that it should pass into heaven. And he has, and he did. To present his righteousness before God for our justification. We have a risen saviour. The great twin pillars of redemptive grace. One who died for us. One who's living for us. Living for us tonight. And ever praying for us. Ever pleading for us. And he appears. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24 tells us. He appears in the presence of God for us. We have ambassadors who came from all over the world for King Charles III's coronation. And they were representing their countries and representing their nations. And new ambassadors, when they come to this land, they have to go to meet the king. And they have to be introduced to him because they're representing their people. Well, Christ, he represents us. All of his blood-washed people. And he appears in the presence of Almighty God for us. This wonderful word justification, <clears throat> it requires a little 
a definition. The catechism, of course, is where you go for your definitions. It's a forensic term. It just simply means the sinner is pronounced righteous, just as if it never sinned. And we can understand maybe it better if we think of the opposite of it. The sinner, still in sin, stands before God condemned. It's con- he or she is condemned. But in justification, the sinner, through grace and through redemptive grace, stands before God, stands before Almighty God now, just as if he or she had never ever sinned. All their sins are pardoned. And not only are all their sins pardoned for the sake of Christ, but they are also accepted as righteous in the sight of Christ. For his sake alone. Accepted righteous in him. Romans 3.24 tells us that we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely through Calvary's love. In Romans chapter 4, verse 6 to 8, well, the whole context of this chapter is concerning uh, Abraham and the Old Testament analogies of David. And <clears throat> we read, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Now think on that. God imputes righteousness without works. Working will not save me. Your works could never save you. It was Christ's work that bought our salvation. His work, his righteousness is imputed to us. We marvel, we marvel again at the amazing grace of God that's found in the gospel of redeeming love. He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised again for our justification. But as we close this evening, these truths have to be believed. They have to be accepted. As we we looked in this morning with the children in question 86 of the catechism, they have to be received and rested upon. Received and rested upon. The final section of Romans 4 from 18 to 24 teaches us what is true believing faith. It's It's a passage I would commend to you. That righteousness that is spoken of here is not obtained through human works. And so the illustration of Abraham is given. Was Abraham justified in circumcision or uncircumcision? And the same way in which he was justified is still the scriptural way in which sinners are justified today. He had faith. He had faith in the promise of God. It wasn't the outer rites of religion that saved Abraham. It was his faith that saved him that was imputed unto him for righteousness. God gave him a promise that he would have a son That son would be the seed. And Abraham just believed God. Even though it seemed an impossible thing. That Sarah would bear a son. And that son would be the seed. And from that son would come the the Messiah. And Abraham believed him. Even though it seemed impossible. He believed him. And the Bible says it was counted unto him for righteousness. The sinner's acceptance before God. Is on the ground of Christ's righteousness. Just the same way as Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Those that believe that Christ was delivered for their offenses, raised again for their justification. The Bible tells us that God then imputes to them the righteousness that is not their own. The righteousness by faith 
which is of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is a living, working assent to the truth of God. Faith is not academic. Faith is experiential. Something that you experience in your heart and in your life. Uh, the way of salvation, men and women, hasn't changed. You either have faith in Christ tonight or you don't. You're either resting upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation or you're not. You're either saved through faith or still in your sin and lost along the way to hell itself. Saving faith, to go back to that simple catechism, is simply receiving Christ, his work, his righteousness, and just resting upon it. That's all the gospel asks you to do tonight. The gospel doesn't ask you to work your way to heaven. The gospel doesn't ask you to work up a certain degree of repentance. The gospel just asks you to receive by faith the work of Christ and rest upon it alone for all of God's eternity. That's the message of the gospel. But have you believed it? Have you believed it? Some of you young ones in the meeting tonight, have you believed it? Some of the older ones, we don't know where you stand. Death was to call you away. We couldn't stand at the grave Satan and say, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection unto eternal life because you're not sure of it. And if you're not sure of it, then how could we be sure of you? When I was a boy, we sang at the children's meetings <clears throat> the little chorus based on Romans 10 and 10. And it goes something like this, Romans 9 and 10. Romans 10 and 9 is a favorite verse of mine. Confessing Christ as Lord, I am saved by grace divine. For there are the words of promise in golden letters shine, Romans 10 and 9. What does Romans 10 and 9 say? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth. These truths have to be believed in the heart and in the life. Man believeth unto righteousness. And you know if you believe something in your heart, you're going to confess it with your mouth. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Maybe you have believed and you haven't confessed it. Maybe you haven't believed and you'd like to do so tonight. If I could be of any help to you, show you further from the scriptures of truth, the way of God's grace and mercy and salvation, well, please wait behind and speak to me. We'll be here after the meeting. Just wait behind and speak to me tonight. And I'm glad this Sabbath day you can be saved. Receiving and resting upon the work of Christ for all of God's eternity.